All righty. Luke chapter 20, verse 41 to 44. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word, which is inerrant, infallible, without error, that speaks to us in the inner recesses of our heart, that gives information and insight into the glory of your great name and the glory of your Son. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take the blinders off our eyes. Too often, Lord, we are blind to the glory of Christ. We, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see him, to see him in all his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 20, verse 41. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? This morning I want to speak to you about who is Jesus Christ. You think, well, Brian... That is so elementary. We've heard that a million times. I don't care how many times we've heard it. It is one of the most important truths that anyone can ever know. And we ought to be reminded of it a million times during our lifetime. Who is Jesus Christ? Now, if you were to go out on the street and ask a hundred different people, you might get a hundred different answers to that question. Who is Jesus? If I were to ask a Muslim, they would say Jesus was one of the great prophets of God. But that's all. If I were to ask someone from the Baha'i faith, they would say he's a very wise teacher. If I asked a Hindu, they would say he's one of many gods. If I asked a Buddhist, they would say Jesus was an enlightened and holy man. If I asked someone from the New Age movement, they would say he's a wise moral teacher. Now, all of those things are true. He is a great prophet. He is uh, an enlightened and holy man. He's a wise teacher. He's a wise moral teacher. All of that is true, um, but it doesn't go far enough. And in our text today, Jesus is going to take the Jews of his day further than they've ever been before to understand who he is, what his identity is, what his nature is. And what we're going to be talking about this morning is is the very core of the Christian faith. This is the cornerstone of Christianity. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. In fact, this is so important that if you're wrong on this, port, this particular point, Jesus said you would die in your sins. John 8, 24. He said to the Jews of his day, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So I'm not talking to you about some secondary matter that is not very important. I'm talking about your relationship to God Almighty depends upon what you believe about His Son. It's not good enough that we just believe that Jesus was a good man, a great teacher, a moral individual, a religious leader of sorts. All that's true, but it doesn't go far enough. And it's when Jesus said, unless you believe that I am He, the he is in italics, meaning it was not in the original. What he actually said was, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And what did he mean by that? Well, hopefully we're going to unfold that this morning. It's one of the hallmarks of all the cults that they deny what we call the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, do you know what I mean when I talk about the deity of Jesus Christ? No? Okay. It means his divinity. And when I say divinity, it means his godhood. When I say the deity of Christ, I'm saying the godhood of Jesus Christ. That he's not just a good man. He's something above that. He is God and human flesh. Every one of the cults will deny that truth. That's how you know when you run into a cult. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus Christ is the first and greatest creation of God. But even though he's the first and he's the greatest, he is, and according to their opinion, a creation of God. In other words, there was a time in their minds when Jesus did not exist. 
So he is a God. He is a mighty God, but he is not the one and true living God, according to their theology. Um, Christian science say that Jesus Christ is a wise man who is in tune with the divine consciousness. Mormons say that Jesus Christ is a created being. He is the brother of Lucifer and all other people who have ever lived. So he is created by God, a spirit, spiritual being created by the Father. Have you ever heard of the Way International? Uh, Victor Paul Weirwilly was the founder of this cult, started back in the 40s. Uh, Victor Paul Weirwilly wrote a book, this is the title, Jesus Christ is Not God. <laughs> so they believe he was a perfect man, but that's all he was. He was a man, but he was not God. So there have always been debates about who Jesus is, and there's always going to be debates about who Jesus is. Count on it. <laughs> For the rest of your life, you will have people that will disagree with you when it comes to your conviction about who Jesus is. But one thing we need to do, we need to have convictions on this point. We need to know what the Bible says, and we need to hold to what the Bible says, because Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. What makes Christianity Christianity is your view of Jesus. All the false religions of the world, all the false cults of the world, deny the central biblical teaching about the nature and identity of Jesus Christ. If you want to be a Christian, you have to understand what the Bible teaches about Jesus, and you have to believe it. That's part of being a Christian. You can't, you can't sort of fudge on this one and get your way into heaven. You have to acknowledge who Jesus is and follow him as Lord. Now, with all that being said, let's just review in our mind a little bit of where we are in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is in the final week of his life. He has been cross-examined over and over by the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. They're trying to find a flaw in him. They're looking for some defect in Christ. They're trying to get him to say something that will incriminate him, get him arrested, and hopefully executed because they hate him and they want him dead. And so over and over, they've been coming to Jesus asking questions. Well, take a look at verse 39 and 40, where we ended up last week. It says, Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Now, this is interesting. The scribes were some of those that wanted Jesus dead. They hated him. But they had to confess that he spoke well. Never did any man speak the way Jesus Christ spoke. And when he blew away all of their um, attempts to get him to say something that would incriminate them, when Jesus gave such wise answers in every situation, all they could say is, Teacher, you've spoken well. And they have no more courage to try to question him anymore because Jesus always has the right answer every time they ask it. So, now that they've stopped asking Jesus questions, it's time for Jesus to ask them a question. Jesus gets to be the questioner this time. Now, this is the very last time Jesus is going to engage these religious leaders before he's put to death. It's the last time he's going to have a discussion with them. What topic do you think Jesus would choose to engage in if it's his very last time to say anything to these religious leaders, do you think it might be a little bit on the important side? <laughs> that's what I would think. He's going to choose something that's not just semi-important, it's ultimately important, and he does. The topic Jesus decides to talk to them about was who he is. And he gets it from Psalm 110, verse 1. This morning, what I want to do is ask a couple of questions from our text in Luke. The first question is, who did the Jews believe the Christ would be? Secondly, who did God declare the Christ would be? Two different questions. Who did the Jews believe the Messiah would be when he came on the scene? But the second question is more important. Who did God declare in the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah was going to be when he arrived? Okay, let's talk about the first one. Who did the Jews believe the Messiah would be? Look at verse 41. Then he, Jesus, said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? Who is they? 
How is it that they say? Well, he's talking about the, the Jewish people. How is it that the Jewish people say that the Christ is David's son? Now, do you understand that word Christ? It's the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah. Christ and Messiah are synonymous terms. They mean anointed one. So when Jesus says, how is it that the Jewish people say that the Christ or the Messiah is David's son? What does that tell us? It tells us that the Jewish people of Jesus' day believed that whenever the Messiah arrived, they would know it because he would be a descendant of David. They all believe that. Now, did they have any good reason to believe that? Well, think about King David. What kind of a person was King David? He was powerful. He was a mighty warrior. Under his kingly rule, he defeated all of the enemies around Israel. He enlarged the territory of Israel by taking, by, by conquering the enemies and taking over the land. He was a great military king. Well, they believed that when Messiah came, he would be a son of David, meaning he would be like King David. And they were right. When the Messiah came, he would be a king, and he would be a great, powerful king. But of course, they were looking not in spiritual terms, but in physical, fleshly terms. They believed that when Messiah came, he would be a great king who would exercise dominion and conquer the Romans, give back the territory of Israel to the Jewish people, and that they would rule themselves from then on. They would be the greatest nation on the earth. And so, Messiah is going to be a son of David. Just as David was a great conquering military king, so will this Messiah be. Now, let's go back in our Bibles and let's see what it has to say about the Messiah and who he would be. Let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here, God sends Nathan the prophet to David to give him some instruction. And I just want to pull out verses 12 and 13 from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is part of the prophecy that Nathan gave to David. He said, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now you might say, well, that was his son Solomon, right? Because Solomon came forth from David. God established Solomon's kingdom. And Solomon built a house for God. All of that is true, but there's more than one um, application of this particular scripture. Solomon's kingdom did not last forever. Whoever Solomon was, he was a prefigure of someone else to come. And I believe this, and, and the Jews even believe this, and most believers today believe that this is a messianic prophecy. It's speaking about who Messiah would be and what he would be like when he shows up. He's going to come forth from David, a descendant of David. He's going to build a house, not a literal temple, but the people of God, the church, the house of God. He's going to build that. And then his kingdom is not going to last just temporarily. His kingdom will endure for all eternity. One more scripture to look at. Psalm 132. Let's take a look at that one. Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. And the Jews understood this in a messianic way. God here is speaking to David and swearing, taking an oath that he's going to take the fruit of his body, one of his descendants, and set him upon his throne. So were the Jews right or wrong to believe that the Messiah would be a son of David? They were right. The scriptures point that out very clearly. They were right but they were incomplete in their understanding of the Messiah. Yes, he is going to be a son of David, but that's not all he's going to be. So yes, they were absolutely right. 
Now, interestingly, let's look over at Matthew chapter 1. Look at the very first verse of the book of Matthew, and let's see how Matthew begins his gospel. Matthew says, in chapter 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. <laughs> so Matthew begins his gospel. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you were to go to Luke's gospel, Luke gives us another genealogy. Matthew traces Jesus back to Abraham through David. Luke traces Jesus back, not to Abraham, but to Adam through David. Both Luke and Matthew trace the genealogy through David so there would be no mistake that Jesus is a son of David. Now, also in Matthew's gospel, if you're to turn over to chapter 9, verse 27. It says, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, why would they be saying that? Have mercy on us, son of David, rather than have mercy on us, Jesus, or have mercy on us, rabbi, or have mercy on us, Lord. You see, the common understanding of the day was that Messiah would be son of David. In fact, son of David was like a nickname for the Messiah. A little catchphrase. If you said Son of David, everybody knew what you're talking about. The coming Messiah, who was prophesied from centuries before. We find this also in chapter 12 of Matthew. Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed. And we're saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? What are they saying? Could this one who just healed that mute man and that blind man, could he possibly be the Messiah? Is he really the son of David? That's what they're saying. Or if we're to go further in chapter 15, we see the example there of the Canaanite woman who has the demon-possessed daughter. It says, and a Canaanite woman, this is Matthew 15, 22, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Again. But most recently, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly on a colt, in Matthew chapter 21, look at what the crowds are shouting in verse 9. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What are they, what are they declaring? Our Messiah is here. That's what they were shouting. That's what they believed. Our Messiah has arrived. This is him. Hosanna. Save now, we pray. That's what Hosanna means. And they believed that now that Jesus was coming, he would save them. He would save them from Roman rule. They got that wrong, but they got the part about the Messiah right. They were absolutely correct. So were people wrong about Jesus? No, they were correct, but they were incomplete. So that takes us to the second question. Who did God declare the Christ would be? Let's look at verses 42 through 44. For David, this is back in Luke chapter 20. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? They were used to thinking that the Messiah would be the son of David. They weren't used to thinking that the, that the Messiah would be the Lord of David. And that's what Jesus says, according to Psalm 110, is the truth about this coming Messiah. Now, let's compare a few scriptures for just a bit. Mark 12, verse 36. This is Mark's version of the same incident. Notice how Mark puts it. Mark 12, 36. I'll start in verse 35. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said, in the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a really interesting detail that we need to take note of. 
Jesus said, David himself said, in the Holy Spirit. What does that tell you about what he's about to say? It's divine. It's inspired. It's scripture. It's God-breathed. It's inerrant. It's infallible. Whatever David is about to write in Psalm 110 verse 1 comes from God. David was speaking in the Holy Spirit when this took place. You can bank, I mean, we believe that all of the scripture is God-breathed and God-inspired, but I'm just making the point that J Jesus specifically said this one was spoken by the Holy Spirit through David. What he's about to quote here, Psalm 110 verse 1, is the most often Old Testament verse quoted in the New Testament. It is either quoted or alluded to some 27 times. <laughs> That's an amazing, there's only 27 books in our New Testament. This verse is constantly on the lips of the apostles as they explain who Jesus is and what he has accomplished and what he's doing right now, now that he has ascended. And what we are privileged to hear is an inter-Trinitarian inter conversation between the members of the Godhead, the Father and the Son. Notice, the Lord said to my Lord. God the Father is saying something to this other Lord, whoever that other Lord is. So have you ever wondered when God talks to his son, what do they talk about? <laughs> what do they say? You know, what, what are their conversations like? We get, to, we get to look at one of them right here. Here it is. This is what he says. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, let's break this apart a little bit. He says, sit at my right hand. Right hand. The right hand is the place of power and authority and majesty and honor. A king places the person that he wants to honor at his right hand. Whoever this Lord is, in verse 42, he has the place of honor at God's right hand. He has a place of preeminence. And what, what really he's getting at is that this person who is at God's right hand is ruling with him. He's a vice regent with God the Father. They are co-ruling the universe. God is on his throne. He sits this Lord at his right hand and together they rule as kings over God's universe. Now, if we were to go back to Psalm 110... There's something also very interesting here. Psalm 110 verse 1 says that this Lord is going to be the one who rules over his enemies. But if you look down a few verses to verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. If there was one thing you never did in the Old Testament, you didn't take an Aaronic priest and make him a king, or you didn't take a king and allow him to minister as a priest in the temple. Those two things were not, uh, you couldn't put them together. God didn't allow it. In fact, I want to read you a story that will highlight this. The story comes from Second Chronicles, chapter 26. So let me find my place. And it, this, this story is about King Uzziah. Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16. But when he, King Uzziah, became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. These guys are courageous. Notice what they do. They, they actually confront the king, the sovereign. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord your God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. He wasn't allowing himself to be confronted by these measly peons, these priests. He was the king, right? And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead. 
before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him. And behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out, because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. So here's a king who tried to act in a priestly role. What happens? God judges. God sends leprosy as a judgment upon this king. God says, I don't care how high and mighty you think you are, you don't intrude into the, the house of the Lord and do what ought not to be done. It is not for a king to take a priestly role. It's not for a priest to take a kingly role. However, there was one person in the Old Testament that was a king and was a priest at the same time. Does anybody know who that is? Melchizedek. He was priest of the Most High God, and he was king of Salem at the same time. And Psalm 110 verse 4 says that the Lord has sworn, and he's not going to change his mind, you, the Lord of verse 1, are a priest forever according to the order of, not Aaron, of Melchizedek. Verse 1 shows the kingly role of this Messiah. Verse 4 shows the priestly role of this Messiah. Now, one of the things that a priest never was unable to do was to sit down. Because there was no throne in the tabernacle. There was no, there was no seat or chair in the temple. Priests didn't sit. They worked. They stood. They walked from this place to that place. They offered sacrifices. They sprinkled the blood. They washed their hands in the laver. They went inside of the tabernacle. They trimmed the lampstand. They put the new... Uh, 12 loaves of bread on the the uh, table of showbread. They made sure that the altar of incense was lit. They were always walking, always standing. In fact, that's what we find in the book of Hebrews. Let me just read this to you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Well, I'm going to start in verse 11. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, so here's our contrast. All the Old Testament priests, they stood daily ministering. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That's what we find in Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, he's called a priest in verse 4 after the order of Melchizedek, but he sat down. Why? Because his work was done. There was nothing more to do. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he meant it. That was the truth. The work of redemption was finalized when Jesus died upon the cross and rose again from the dead. Redemption was completed, the work of redemption. So here we have a king priest. Okay, going back to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what does this mean, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? What is that all about? Well, if we know our Old Testaments, there's a story in Joshua chapter 10 that helps us in this regard. In Joshua chapter 10, five enemy kings came up against Israel. And God was with Joshua, and the Israelites prevailed. But what they did is they took those five kings over the nations that had attacked them, and they shut them up in these caves until the war was over. When they had been defeated, they took these enemy kings out, and Joshua instructed the captains of his army to put their foot on the necks of these five kings. He's symbolically causing them to display a truth. To put your foot on the neck of somebody else means that you have gained complete mastery and dominion over that enemy. And then Joshua himself came and slew them before the Lord. 
When it says here, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, it means until I utterly destroy your enemies. Until they're completely vanquished. So, the Lord, Jehovah, says to this other Lord, you sit down at my right hand, the place of authority and preeminence and majesty and honor, and you keep sitting there until I make all of your enemies completely destroyed and vanquished and completely under your dominion. Now, let's take a look at the first part of this statement. The Lord says to my Lord. In the Hebrew, there are two different words. The first word is Jehovah or Yahweh. The second word is Adonai. Jehovah says to Adonai, sit at my right hand. Now, who's Adonai? We know who Jehovah is. He's creator of heaven and earth. Who in the world is this Adonai spoken of? The Lord. Well, the word literally means sovereign, ruler, or master. Jehovah says to my sovereign, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who is David's sovereign? Who is this Adonai that he's talking about? Remember who David is. He is the sovereign, right? He's the king of Israel. There is no sovereign over David, no human sovereign. He is the king of Israel. He is the final word in Israel. His word goes. He's accountable to nobody. He's the king. He has no earthly sovereign. So who is it? The Lord, Jehovah, speaks to David's Adonai, his sovereign. There is no explanation for who this Adonai is unless he is David's God. Unless he is David's creator. That's who David's sovereign was. Now, interestingly, their very own scriptures told them this if they had eyes to see it, but they didn't have eyes to see it. They were blinded to this truth, but it's very clearly spelled out in their own scriptures. Let's take a look at those. Go over with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. He's speaking here about Messiah to come. We usually read this around Christmas time and we forget about it the other 364 days of the year. This is a great, great truth right here. There's going to be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David. See, this is the son of David they're talking about. Nickname for Messiah, catchword for Messiah. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Okay, so this son of David is going to rule from David's throne. But who is he? Look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. You hear that? This baby that's going to be born, the son of David, that's going to rule on David's throne, is the Mighty God. How much more clear could God have made the identity of the Messiah than this? But they couldn't see it. They're blinded to it. That's not the only one. Go over two chapters to Isaiah chapter 11. 11 verse 1 of Isaiah. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And then it goes on to say how the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him. All the Jews knew that this was talking about Messiah. Well, what does it say? A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Now, who's Jesse? David's father. So this is saying a shoot is going to stem from David's father. In other words, there will be a descendant from Jesse, also a descendant from David, who this is going to be true of. The Spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him. So he's going to be the shoot of David. But now look at verse 10. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. What? We just read that he was the shoot of Jesse. Now we're told he's the root. He's both. 
They understood the Messiah would be the shoot of Jesse. That means an offspring, an offshoot from David. They didn't understand that he was going to be the root. What would it mean for this Messiah to be the root of Jesse? It means that he's the source from which David comes, right? The root produces the plant. He would be the the source, the creator of Jesse and the creator of David. Let's look at one more. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. It's the same thing we've been reading over and over, isn't it? That this Messiah is going to be the son of David. He's going to rule on David's throne. He's going to be a wise, just king. But notice verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. He's called mighty God. He's called the Lord, our righteousness in the Jews own scriptures. He's called the root of Jesse. There can be no human being can be the root of Jesse other than God, the creator of Jesse. In fact, Revelation 22.16 says of Jesus himself that he is the root and the offspring of David. Going back to here, Isaiah 11 verses 1 and verse 10. Now what does the New Testament tell us about Jesus Christ? What do the New Testament apostles say about his identity and who he is? Well, I want to show you the Apostle Paul's writing in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Paul says that this gospel that he preaches is concerning God's Son, who is born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. You say, wait a minute, is he the son of David or is he the son of God? Verse 3 says he's the son of David. Verse 4 says he's the son of God. It's not either or, it's both and. He has a human nature and he has a divine nature. He's the son of man. He loved to call himself the son of man, didn't he? Wherever he went, the son of man. But he's also the son of God. He's a human and he's divine in one person, indissoluble unity. Now, don't ask me to explain that, <laughs> but I'm just going to declare it because I can't really explain it to your satisfaction, I'm sure. Some of the things in the Bible that God has revealed to us are mysterious. And we're never going to fully, with our pea brains, you know, fully get it, this side of heaven. Maybe we won't even get it in heaven, I don't know. That's, the doctrine of the Trinity is like that. There is one God who has always existed in three persons. Well, what would we expect from a God who is so infinitely great above us? This is what we would expect. We would expect some mystery in the nature of God. We would expect some mystery in the nature of His Son. Now, let me just ask you this. Jesus never answers His question. Jesus says in verse 44, Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he his son? But he just lets that question linger. He never goes by and says, Well, I'll tell you how it happens. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. And I'm the Son of David. He didn't say that. So we're left wondering, Well, is Jesus the one spoken of here in Psalm 110, verse 1? Was that about Jesus? Turn over in your Bible in Luke 20, turn over to two chapters later to Luke 22. Verse 66. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, 
the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Where did Jesus get that little statement from? Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's just quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. This is Jesus' way of saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one Psalm 110 spoke of. I am the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I am the one who exercised prophet, priest, and king all in one person. I have a divine nature. I have a human nature. And you're going to see me coming on the clouds of heaven one day. Now, let me ask you this. If God, let's just hypothetically say, if God were to become a man, what would you expect? Let's just throw out everything we know and just be hypothetical for a minute. <laughs> if the eternal creator God were to become one of us, what would we expect? Well, wouldn't we expect that he'd have a, a supernatural birth? If God is going to enter his created world, wouldn't he come in a most unusual way? <laughs> Wouldn't we expect that this one who came would be sinless? Because God is holy, holy, holy. Wouldn't we expect him to speak the greatest words ever spoken? Wouldn't we expect him to display power over disease and demons and nature and death? Wouldn't we expect him to exercise profound influence over humanity? And wouldn't we also expect him to rise from the dead? <laughs> and that's exactly what we have in the gospel records. Jesus did every one of those things. The missionary C.T. Studd once said it like this, If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's just common sense. Think about it. If Jesus Christ is God, the eternal God, who became man and died for me? Why in the world would he ever choose to die for one like me? But if he did, there's no sacrifice that can ever be too great for me to make for him. Now let's draw some application this morning. What difference does this passage in Luke make? So what? What, is it, what difference does it make? What, what, what is the Holy Spirit getting at? What is he wanting to do in our lives? because of this teaching of Jesus Christ from Psalm 110, verse 1. Does it matter whether Jesus is an angel, or a man, or a prophet, or a wise teacher, or an enlightened guru? Does it really matter? Yes. You, you have no gospel unless you have God at the center of the cross. The gospel by which you are saved depends upon whether Jesus was God or not. You see, God is holy. And we are his enemies. We are children of wrath by nature, brought into this world under the wrath of God. Sinners, disobedient, wretched and vile in his all-holy gaze. There's a big problem. We, we have a very big problem. We are cut off from this God. And if we die in that condition, we will spend eternity in punishment in hellfire. It's a huge problem. We have a desperate, desperate condition. If God is holy, and we are helpless sinners, what can possibly, possibly be done? Think about this with me. We've got to be rescued. We can't rescue ourselves because we have a sinful heart. We have a sinful nature. How are we going to rescue ourselves? We are the problem. How are we going to rescue ourselves if we're the problem? <laughs> we need someone who will come from outside of ourselves into our world and do the work that we can't do for ourselves. We have offended a thrice holy God. And we don't, we don't even understand that. This biography I've been reading by Edward Payson is amazing because God gave him such an illumination about his own vileness and sin. And to look at him, I'm sure you would never know it because he, he confesses that there's no known sin or, or known duty that he is either committing or lacking in. But yet he still feels this. And he's not 
When he writes this diary, it wasn't for publication. He's writing it for himself. And he, over and over, he confesses how unworthy and vile he feels in the presence of God. And how could God ever have mercy on such a wretch like him? This is the truth, but we just don't have eyes to see it because we're naturally so proud. So we've got this holy God and we've got us who don't even, we're not even worthy to stand in God's presence. What can possibly be done? How can we possibly be rescued? Sin is the problem. God himself is going to solve it. God will become a man to deal with the problem by which we can now be rescued and brought into his favor. Let me show you this from the Old Testament book of Job. Job chapter 9, verse 33. Okay, here, here Job makes this statement. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Job is complaining. He, he can't go to God. He can't lay out his complaints. There's no umpire. Now, what does an umpire do? He settles disputes. You've got one team angry and yelling at the other team because he says, he was safe. No, he's out. The umpire settles the dispute, right? Job says, there is no umpire to settle this dispute and create peace who can lay his hand upon us both. Do you know what? Job just didn't know. He lived on the wrong side of the cross. He lived on the wrong side of the incarnation. There is an umpire. In fact, the ESV says arbiter. There is an arbiter who can lay his hand upon us both. Jesus can lay his hand on God because he is God. Jesus can lay his hand on me because he's a man. And then he can draw us together, removing the issue that has separated us and make us to be at peace. He can reconcile man and God. Isn't that beautiful? We have a mediator. We have an umpire. We have an arbiter who is both God and both man. Now let's say Jesus was only pure God, that he never became a man. Can he solve our sin problem? No. Because man sinned. God cannot die because God is God. God doesn't die. <laughs> only a man can die. God has got to become a man in order to bear the sins of men, in order to die for those sins, which is the penalty, in order to atone for them. So a pure God can't solve the problem. But if Jesus is just a man, can he solve the problem? No. No, because all men are corrupted and filthy and polluted by sin, except for this one. God who became a man was, was spotless and pure and holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. Absolutely righteous in every, every way. And only God become man could could be supported under such great weight and great agony of bearing the sins of mankind. A mere created being, I'm sorry, I just don't believe that a mere man is going to be able to bear the wrath of God against sin. It doesn't make any sense to me. But what we have is God become flesh to deal with the sin problem and so the gospel is that Jesus Christ is God, come to rescue you. Without that truth, my friend, you don't have a gospel. And you can't be saved. You're going to die in your sins. Unless you have God rescuing you through the incarnation. There's another verse I wanted to point to you too. And that's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Same truth. Jehovah God, there's one God. That God has determined that the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come into this world bearing our nature assuming our nature. And what he's going to do is, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. So God in flesh comes and gives himself a ransom, a payment 
to deliver us, to rescue us from our sin. My friends, if Jesus Christ is not God, Christianity is a lie. We have no gospel by which we can be saved. If Jesus is God, then we must obey Him and we must worship Him. Away with this ridiculous nonsense of accepting Jesus as your Savior and maybe one day getting around to Him as your Lord, but if you don't, that's okay too. If Jesus is God, do you have the option of going on in a life of disobedience? No way. No possible way. I am convinced that the Scriptures teach that a person does not become a Christian unless he is willing to yield his will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Of course, that doesn't mean he's perfect. Nobody in this world is. But it means that he's willing to obey the Master. And when he sins, and he will, he repents. And he begins to follow his Master afresh. If Jesus Christ is not God, you and I have no hope. We're damned. We're going to spend eternity in the flames of hell if Jesus isn't God. But praise the Lord, the gospel is true. Jesus is God. God sent His Son to be a man, to die for our sins. The Bible says He is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained the Father. So I want to encourage you this morning, first of all, rejoice that you have a gospel by which you are saved. Second of all, obey this Master. Thirdly, worship Him. Give Him the honor and the due that is His. Jesus said that they will honor and obey the Son even as they obey and honor the Father. John chapter 5. He is due the same honor and worship that God the Father is due. And that's why we sing songs to Jesus. That's why we worship Him as God. If you want to believe that Jesus is just a man or even a perfect man or a great prophet, be my guest, but I'll have no part with it. I will die with my confession, Jesus Christ is Lord and my God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a great Savior. Hallelujah. We have, we have the one thing needful, Lord, and none of us were crying out for it. Nobody was asking for it. Lord, we were in our stupidity and our blindness, but you took pity upon this human race and you, you sent your Son into the world to die for sinners. And Lord, we do worship the Lord Jesus Christ today as our King and our God. He is our all in all. And may this be our confession to our dying day. In His precious and holy name we pray this. Amen.